Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. Years ago, I think I was like in seventh or eighth grade, I'm not even sure. Maybe been before then. I don't know. But I used to get these two kids in my neighborhood used to bully me. They bullied me at the bus stop, and I remember I got a football one Christmas, and I got this football, and we all played, and they said, can we borrow it? And they never gave me my football back, and it stuck with me because I'm a sensitive guy. Well, years later, I'm doing stand-up comedy, and, and the one bully, the one bully comes to my show, okay? Now, the headliner of that show was a guy who was on the morning zoo, which at the time in Philadelphia was like the biggest show. It was before Stern got there. Everybody listened to the morning show. There was no, there was no, you know, sports radio, none of that crap. And so the headliner was the guy who was in the morning zoo. Well, the bully shows up at my show, and he's like, hey, Coop, what's up? What's up? Yeah, you know, you know the headliner. I'm a big fan. And I said, all right, that's great. And I said, you know, I'll introduce you after the show. Even though I was pissed off and I was hurt because he picked on me, I said, you know, he had told me he had, he had like, got divorced. He got discharged from the Army. He was a hardcore alcoholic. And inside, I gloated. I'm not going to lie. But on the outside, I said, I could do this guy solid. So I tell the headliner how this guy stole my football. So after the show, I introduce this guy to the headliner. And the guy says, oh, yeah, me and Coop have been friends since we were little kids. And the headliner said, I heard you stole his football. And that headliner is my guest today. And my guest is Pat Godwin. How you doing, Pat? Yeah, I love that story. Well, I completely st- forgot about it. I think you posted something about it on Facebook. And it made me laugh because I remember exactly that story. But I hated bullies as a kid, and I also played football. And when anybody takes your football, I, I don't know if my dad was a college professor. We didn't have a whole lot of money. It means a lot to you. And it's, it's the ultimate form of bullying. If someone steals the thing that brings you such joy, you know? Right. And, and I thought... Well, it's funny because I knew you, but I mean, none of us really knew you. Like when the comedy scene, I want to talk about, you know, how you got ended up in comedy. But when you think about it in Philadelphia, you know, you branched into the comedy scene very quick because of the radio. And because, of course, right. it, it was that's of course you're on the radio and you're funny. So people are, are going to do it. But for a lot of us younger comics who were were your age. We didn't really know you because we were hitting the trenches and working the door at the CFO and, you know, Comedy Factory Outlet. And so you were already performing when we were working the doors. So for you to do a solid like that, it was cool to me because I was like, hey, this guy's pretty cool. Even though, you know, we were all pissed off because <laughs> you were getting the gigs and we were working the door. But now now you're one of these guys. What's, what? What's up? Go no, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, no, no you're... You're you're one of these guys who is a musician who does comedy, and, and and a lot of people don't know there's also comedians who do music. Now you know when did you grow up loving music? How did you get into music? I mean, what was your path? Well, I um, was a piano player. I started a, I was a, a jock uh, growing up, but then I was just so obsessed by uh, piano and Elton John and the Beatles, Steely Dan. I started to play piano constantly. And I sang, and I put out an album when I was 22 years old. When you guys had met me, I was like 31 already, or 30, because, uh, you know, I'd been doing music for 10 years and had a couple of albums out. But when I started to talk in between my songs, because at that time, Duran Duran was popular in videos, and a guy with an acoustic guitar, it wasn't like, you know, there's a John Mayer around. There was nobody with an acoustic guitar anymore on the radio. So I started to talk more to the audiences, and I became funny and entertaining in those in-between song moments. And uh, But I had been knocking around for 10 years and playing the University of Pennsylvania bars, 
doing all my own original music and uh, never doing any covers. Maybe I'll do a couple of Beatles things. We're just starting to talk more in between and then the songs got crazier. And Todd Glass, you know, brought me to my first uh, open mic. And he used to go see me perform all the time and he begged me to do an open mic because he thought I was real funny. So I kind of just fell into comedy. And, you know, once I, once I did, it opened up a bunch of doors. You know, but I really sort of just lucked into it. And uh, then I was just obsessed by it. And I was just not good when I started out, and I had to be because I was thrown into the headliner spot and thrown on the radio when I really wasn't the, the comic singing guy. I was a very serious songwriter. So I really had to bust my ass to get, you know, to get better. It was just a struggle. You know, when you're thrown out there for 45 minutes and you've got three minutes. Right. <laughs> well, now, you know, you learn real quick how to be funny. Now, how did you... How did you get gigs playing just originals because you know it always seems like college bars and like the Jersey Shore bars there's so many cover bands and and as you said you know the singer songwriter to me is a lost art form I went to see Graham Parker last night in a place that held like 35 people and you know he was yeah, just I was going to ask you about that you know Graham Parker I got a chance to play with him when he did the morning zoo in Atlantic City uh, he was one of my huge uh, it was such an inspiration to me and I got a chance to play piano and back him up on a song called You Can't Be Too Strong, which is off of Squeezing Out Sparks. I am a, I'm an enormous fan of, and he was so nice to me and gracious to me and allowing me to play piano on something. He didn't know me from Adam. And he goes, yeah, man, let's rehearse when we did it. He was the greatest. Yeah, well, and he was like I saw him last night. It was amazing. And now even like I saw Jeffrey Gaines uh, last weekend, who's also an amazing singer-songwriter. Right. And they can do it stripped down. For you, I mean, was it hard when you were playing the Philly scene? And also Smokey Joe's is a college bar. So you're also playing to young pen kids who are, are rich and they're drunk. And I remember Smokey Joe's, you get like a pitcher of beer for like three bucks, you know, and everyone just gets shit-faced. What was it like in those early days when you were playing these gigs in Philly? And what brought you down to Philly to start playing those gigs? I know you grew up outside in that Neil Gallagher territory. Exactly. How do you know Neil Gallagher? Uh, Neil... Uh, this is funny. My friend does sound uh, for reality TV, and him and Neil met, right. met on a bunch of shows. Show. And then we would we would we would hook up and have beers, and it turned out we were both Eagles fans. And he was from the Poconos, and the whole story. Neil Gallagher was one of uh, one of the guys who kind of made me. He used to come to this place called Bay's Place. I did all my own stuff. And what happened was these guys encouraged me to strictly do that. They sang along with my own stuff. We made a we did four sets of it. They became real fans and encouraged me. Then to go down to Philadelphia, where well, I stayed my ground. I didn't, you know, I, I, I would occasionally do Beatles songs, but I really, really wasn't good at memorizing other people's stuff. I really enjoyed the creativity of doing my own stuff. And I was kind of the patron saint of original songs in my area. Then I went, when I went to Philadelphia, I just started to, like, steadfastly stand up there, talk a lot, make them laugh, do a serious song, do a quirky song. Like, I had quirky things like Cemetery Girls and all the great goofy songs that people gravitated towards. And so we developed the following. You know, I, I, I paid a guy to, to rent his PA. He turns out he plays bongos. I grabbed a keyboard player from the music school, and we made like a, a every Wednesday, we made a night, a night out of it. And I didn't have to do other people's material. You know, I was really lucky. But I kind of had to get the gab in between songs to keep them entertained, you know. And it wasn't like I was being ignored either. That We made a real scene out of it, you know. And for Smokey Joe's, if you ever been in there, and that place is strictly a pickup, drinking loud, you know, a loud kind of place. So I, I really had to do louder, raucous kinds of 
of music, you know? Right. Now, I mean, that, now you're, you're playing, and you're playing Smokey Joe's, and you said Todd took you for the open mic. How did you end up on the morning zoo? And it's just so crazy because... I, you know, you try to talk to people now. It's like talking about how TV shows like MASH were big. Like, at that time, I remember I, when I was working at Atlet, I had Comedy Factory Atlet, I had a few friends from college who said, if we ever hear your name in the morning zoo, we're coming to see you perform. And I hosted one weekend, and I guess Clay or whoever was in the morning zoo at the time said my name, so these guys came out. But the morning zoo was huge. How did you get on that? Because basically, you had a following, but that show, I mean, that had numbers Everybody listened to it, and you're a new guy just sliding in there. Well, you know, I, I was very lucky. What had happened was, is Todd took me to the Comedy Works first. And as you well know, you're a CFO guy. There was a, a, a political aspect to both those clubs. You were, you were either or a comic. Rarely did the, did the comedian do both clubs, as you well know. I think there are a couple guys did, but, that, that did. But, you know, I went over and did my first open mic at the Comedy, at the comedy Works. Young before I even went up on stage, says, "Hey, we got enough guitar guys. We have Lee Fielding. We have uh, oh, geez, who was the other guy? Uh, oh, I forget. There was another uh, Patrick Sullivan or somebody. Kevin, Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan did uh, did music too, and he says, uh, you know, we don't even need you. I don't even know why you're bothering.' And I was like crestfallen, and Tom was embarrassed that he wasn't really gravitating towards me because Todd was really grooming me. He said I had the stage presence, and I would run and, and basically. The little, my little open mic thing was just, I would string a bunch of singers together and goop on their voices, and that was kind of my little seven-minute presentation. So when the comedy works wasn't even interested in seeing me or hearing it, uh, Todd says, go, give it one more chance. We're going to go over to uh, the CFO, whatever that open mic was. And Keith Robinson was the guy in charge of putting everybody up. Clay was there that night. Clay brought a, uh, a blind girl up with a seeing-eye dog, and after her horrible set said, uh, even the dog was bored, and I thought, oh, my gosh, it's going to be terrible. His open, his, the way he introduced me was, uh, here's a guy with a guitar, and all these guys can, uh, sometimes they're funny, and but most of the time they suck. What's the other guy does? That was his intro to me. But what had happened was he was taping that night, and I, for some reason, I think you know in the beginning how we can get lucky with the set, even though we're not that proficient in comedy. For some reason, it's just easy that night. And I happened to just bring these impressions together in a, in, a, in a proper way. It was like Prince, Springsteen, whoever was, you know, Tom Petty, just some classic rock impressions. And uh, it went over pretty well. And Clay took that, a tape of that night and played it for Debella the very next day or something. And, uh, and then uh, by about, on the next Monday, I was on the show. It was, it was actually that quick. Now, that happened. So, Debella asked me, John Debella was the lead guy of the morning too, and he's still on in Philadelphia, as you well know. Debella says to me, hey, can you do these funny things on a daily basis? And all I did was lie and say, yeah, of course, whenever you're up for the gig. Hey, you know, if you're an actor, hey, you know how to ride a horse? Uh, yeah, you know, by the time the gig comes around, you learn how to ride a horse. That's basically how it happened. Now that had I just to, bullshitted my way on. That had to change your life, though, because, you know, you went from playing Smokey Joe's to a, a job where all of a sudden, you're even though you had a following, you had, you know, following from playing, you're all of a sudden going to get a new big fan base because I don't know what the numbers were, how many millions listened, but it was a hell of a lot. I mean, how does how did you go going in there knowing that you, you're a musician at heart, 
You know, that's what you love. You're going in and you're going to have to come up with the shit three days every day a week. Were you nervous at all? Or would you think they're going to find out that I'm, I'm just new at comedy? Because you were very new. No, you know, I, I, uh, I, I enjoyed it so much. It was just such a, it was such an incredible experience. I literally went from, I was staying in the basement at Fig Up over at the University of Pennsylvania in, in an area that we used to be where there was a room down there, but no one looked down there because it was just so scuzzy. And that's where I was staying. I started to date this girl who was working at that at Smoking Joe's, so my life was starting to change a little bit. But when I first got my, it was supposed to be that good of a salary, it still allowed me to then get an apartment in downtown Philly, I've become a, I've become a member of this great team. And then I was there six years. By that sixth year, I was getting paid extraordinarily well. So it changed my life completely. And I never did serious songs out in public ever again. And I know the people at the University of Pennsylvania were a little aggravated, the kind of fan base that I built up. But, I mean, the funny stuff was so challenging that I just uh, I ate it up. I mean, it was just an amazing ride, you know? Well, it was as, really a lot of fun. As a musician, you know, being on the morning zoo... You said you got to play with Grant Parker, and I've seen some of the pictures you post, which you should post more on Facebook because you know everyone went through there. What are some of your career highlights that, of musicians you met that you would have never met if you didn't do the Morning Zoo, and then who you got to play with who you would have never played with if you got you weren't on the Morning Zoo? Well, I mean, just for example, of course, the Grant Parker moment. I mean, Pete Townsend came on our show when I was in London. He didn't have a guitar with him, and the Bella had asked me if I could trick him into playing uh, Pinball Wizard. So I started to play the course of Pinball Wizard and been telling Pete Townsend, hey, uh, well, how does that opening the Pinball Wizard go? I don't know if Pinball Wizard takes the guitar from me. But then, when I started to play it perfectly, by the way, because I love that song, he just kind of teased me, went, you know it, you're just trying to get me to sing the damn song. He goes, you play the, you play the guitar part and I'll sing it. So I played the guitar part the Pinball Wizard, which is a it's a bitch, by the way. It's an actually it's a very difficult song to play. And he sang a verse of it. So, was that, so there were things like that. Just like the Warren Zevon moments is one of my favorite songwriters of all time also. You know, uh, never would I have gotten an opportunity if it weren't for the morning suit of backup to Zevon and Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Elvis Costello would come through, and I'd get a chance to play uh, backup with him. Eddie Money, Money you know, there would always be a piano in the room or a guitar. And if these guys didn't want to sing... Bella and the rest of the gang would always get me to play something or goof around first, and then invariably we would get these huge stars to just jump out of their comfort zone and stop whining about it being in the morning, you know, because now hell, people are driving to work to go to Philadelphia, they don't want to hear this rock star complaining, oh, I don't want to sing, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. You know, man up. They'd see me do it at 8 o'clock in the morning, and then you'd get, you'd get uh, somebody to pick up the guitar and play, so it was just phenomenal. I mean, every day with somebody on our show, I can't even begin to, to rattle off from Chris Isaac to the, the you know, the John Anderson from Yes, I got a chance to sing and play with. And, you know, and I, I would always jump in if these guys didn't want to play and Julian Leonard would come in. And I think I'm the one who played the chorus of Stand By Me when he sang it. You know, the guys from XTC came through. It was just an incredible experience that I would never have had if it weren't for WMMR. Amazing. Now, now, as as you're on that show, your your brand as a comic is becoming bigger. How do you start to get yourself into a point where you feel like you're becoming comfortable as a headliner? Because as you said earlier, you know you only have three minutes, and people who don't do comedy don't understand that people can say they have thirty minutes, but they have twenty six minutes and four minutes suck. But you, 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 it was two kinds of pressure. Because one, you had to be a headliner. 
was not only are you on the radio, you're also do music, which is very hard to follow. And also, you're a name. So you have this pressure that you all of a sudden have to accelerate into a headliner. How did you gradually do that? Or what were your, what was your, you know, your strategy to actually increase yourself as an act so you felt confident on stage? Well, uh, from talking to people setting up songs at Smokey Joe's and all the various college bars and clubs, I developed a, a, a style of being quick on my feet and able to improvise because uh, I was never good at like memorizing a bit or doing a bit. So I was pretty funny in between the songs. But the, until 1994, we, got, we all got fired out on other singers, topical things in the morning zoo. But it really wasn't until I got fired and went down south and worked every night for two years that I made all the, all the music completely original, not a parody. And uh, I, I had like these bullet points and improvisational skills that just came from knocking it out every every weekend, uh, you know, in, in the clubs. But it wasn't until, like I said, I got fired that I actually became, I would think, a bona fide headliner. I think until the very day that I, I worked at MMR, I still didn't have, I, I just strung songs together I did that week and barely, barely made it out alive. You know, I did my Springsteen bit, I improvised a little bit, but I wasn't really proud, truly proud of the live stuff until I went out on the road. And, and that's where you really learn. If you're on stage every night, that's where you really learn your craft. But if you're only on stage every Friday and Saturday at the Comedy Cabaret, you know, you're not you're not advancing as well as you should. Well, and keep in mind, I had a full week where I was learning how to write funny songs and recording, but I wasn't on my feet, you know, in front of a live crowd until 94. So I think that's when it sort of took off. Well, it's funny. I, I remember, I do remember, I remember a lot of those Philly bits because I was in the room so much working and then I started working on the comedy cabarets. And I remember, like, your one bit wasn't even musical that cracked me up. It was the, you didn't need your guitar. It was the Billy Joel bit, Billy Joel for Sesame Street. And I, I still remember it. Well, I don't, <laughs> that was I just. I held on to those little tiny things. I, I would close with um, stars doing, you know, doing commercials now. And Billy Joel for Sesame Street was one of them. But yeah, that's the kind of little Philly things that I put together. That weren't that I wasn't necessarily like super proud of, but they stuck with me and they did well with an audience. I think I changed things around uh, to where everything was coming more from a personal angle after I had left the morning zoo. You know, I didn't realize how good I had it at the morning zoo until we all got fired. And then, you know, mother uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I really had to learn how to become a guy who actually had segues, strung things together properly, had a nice beginning. A little bit of improv, crowd work, songs, original songs. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. I, I, I dreaded getting fired because then I was broke again, like the old days. But I, I really uh, found out how to be a comedian after that. And then I became this national headliner as opposed to a Philadelphia one. And, you know, that was, that, that was incredibly exciting. Now, but now, never forgetting that the Philadelphia days were, oh my God, what a learning, uh, what a learning uh, curve that was. Now, why did you get? Day, why, no, why, why did you? Why did you get fired? Did you see it coming, or what happened? And then, you know, was it just? Well, Stern, Stern came into our market, and then we were kind of forced to uh, to fight him. Debella didn't want to fight him, which I really hated. So he, Debella and I fought over that. You know, Stern came into the market and finally beat us, and uh, it was just you know a lot of stuff happened. John, John's uh, wife, who was going through a divorce, was passed away. My, my brother had to have been dating her at the time. There's a lot of friction, a lot of tension. And our show just imploded. Um, uh, we, we didn't know how to handle Stern beating us. And it was such a 
that he would come to town doing the funerals and John wouldn't talk about it. The show became stale. Our show became stale. And I think WMMR decided to just can't can everybody but the bell because I think he had this huge contract still. And the rest of us were just like, boom, we were thrown out to the wind. You know, I ended up going on Stern and uh, worked for Stern um, doing songs for him for the next six or seven years. But it was really a, it was a, it was, a, it was amazingly tra- tragic. I mean, someone lost their life. None of us have jobs now. John's still back to the station. And I really hadn't planned on financially on being, you know, that that broke again. So, and I, I myself went through a divorce right in 94. So that was a, that was a rough year. Now, now, how did you sit there, as you said, you did you said you went down south. How did you start parlaying into playing these clubs on the road and down south? How did you get in with those clubs? And was it the comedy zone or what were the chains? And were they bringing you in immediately as a headliner because you were known as a act that can do well? Well, Roger Paul, you know the agent from New York, Roger Paul? Yeah. He, um, he knew me because I worked with his ex-wife, Claudia Sherman, so Roger seen me a bunch. And the Comedy Zones um, had the final four in Charlotte, and they needed a guy to perform from 2 o'clock in the afternoon to 2 at night and a novelty kind of a musical act. And uh, so they put together this makeshift comedy club, and I just worked down there from 2 o'clock in the morning till 2 o'clock at night for, for three or four days during the, uh, the final four. And the owner, Brad Greenberg, who managed Scaretop, instantly wanted to manage me and open up his whole book to me. And uh, he booked me for the whole year right in the spot, you know, working every, from Tuesday through Sunday. So I quickly got out of debt, you know, and got to the divorce debt. But what I didn't realize what was happening is that I was starting to get really good because I was sort of becoming bomb-proof. You work in the South and you're an East Coast guy, there's, there's, there's another learning curve. Don't make fun of the people you're performing for. And every day performing for hillbillies in these, you know, cowboy bars or you know, in Georgia, then, then you're down in Florida, then you're in Miami where it's all ethnic. It was it was an incredible learning experience. And so, yeah, and they headlined me right off the bat, but I, from the very first go at it, um, I got lucky by doing that final four and the owner had seen me work in all kinds of conditions, you know? No. I mean, just this drunken, rowdy crowd, and I was up, 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 I would go on at 2 o'clock and we would do like five or six shows throughout the day. There were a couple of other comedians who also performed, Karen Top being one of them, Charlie Baracola. But basically, I took the bulk of it, you know? So he kind of liked my work ethic. Now, how did, how did you adapt to those crowds? Because musical comedy and, you know, doing your songs, you know, they have different musical tastes. Did you ever have to sit there and go, go on stage going, you know what, I mean, Billy Joel... It's not going to work here, or this song about this is not going to work here. I mean, I remember you did a song. Absolutely, uh, you did a song that's called. I mean. wait, you did that's, you did a song that's, called that's, you did a song called Pico about Bico, which like right, no right. no one would get that, but it was a very funny song. No, I didn't I didn't do any of that. What I did was I that's where I learned how not to like use somebody that they didn't like if I was goofing on them. So I didn't even do Springsteen. What I did, I developed these novelty country esque kind of Americana pieces of songs and you know if I'm in the south and I'm going to goof on Johnny Cash doing an original song of my own and I developed these songs that were funny to everybody so no matter where, where I went it was something everybody could relate to see the minute I bring up a Peter Gabriel hey he sounds funny or I go hey how about this Bruce Springsteen you know you'd be surprised at the south they don't know who the hell you're talking about you know now I, I'm not even joking I, you can't even bring rock and roll guys into the mix 
So I developed this quirky little cute road warrior type songs and uh, just kept it more universal without pandering to a country market that I don't necessarily care for. I'm not a huge fan of pop country. So yeah, I had to change things around drastically. So so you're you're on the road down there. Now what are your are your goals? Are you sitting there? I mean, you know, headliners back then especially made really good money. I mean, you're making good money, but was the, did the travel start to wear on you a little bit? Because that is a lot of driving in those southern gigs. You know, you drive. I mean, you'll do a weekday. You'll do a week from a Tuesday to a Sunday, but then you have to drive a lot. Did it start wearing on you at all? Yeah, at the two-year mark, it, it, it wore me down. I met a girl in 94, the same year I started to do the comedy zone stuff. And um, she was this Miami girl, wealthy family. And her family encouraged me just to go out to uh, L.A. So what I did was, uh, for two years of thinking, okay, I got all this original music, even though I'm a guitar act, and a lot of times we're looked down upon in the industry, and by other, monolo- by other monologists, too, uh, if you have a guitar. So I went, I went out to L.A., and I uh, started to headline all the big clubs there, the Comedy Magic Club, uh, the Ice House and stuff. But I had a real hard go of, So I would go back out on the road and, you know, do all the A rooms, come back and come back into L.A., pay for my rent and go right back out. I wasn't able to take advantage of it like a Paul Tompkins, for example, was able to move out to, uh, to L.A. and really sit in one place and do great work and have the industry kind of come to him. Uh, I had a couple of failed pilots and, and nothing I did uh, turned out very well in L.A. And, and so I really just became this tireless road dog just trying to pay the rent. Even though I was in Entertainment City and doing Vegas and all this stuff, I think having the guitar kind of hurt me. And it wasn't until I started doing the Bob and Tom show in Indianapolis that, uh, you know, people really started to enjoy the original work we did there. Never really did a whole lot of parodies for the Bob and Tom show. I developed a symbiotic relationship with them where I was allowed to be creative and really get back on my feet emotionally because, as you said, the road, you know, you, if you're just paying for rent and you just want to be home with your gal because you're madly in love, it's a horrible existence, you know? And you tend to not be as creative as you should be. It wasn't until I started doing this nationally syndicated Bob and Tom show that I really found my second wind in the business, so to speak, and started to put out albums again and be creative. Now, now, how did you end up with the Bob and Tom show? And the funny thing is, I'm not really familiar with it, but... I mean, just because I don't really, I, I'm not in Minneapolis, I know it's syndicated, and I know it's huge, and I've seen a lot of comics go on it, but how did you get involved in that show, and did you know right away that they liked you, and you were going to be able to have a relationship that would actually help you grow your career? Well, I was uh, living in LA, the lady who booked the Ice House also booked Trackers in Indianapolis, her name's Elaine, and she sent me through Indy, um, and my first time through Indy, um, you know, I had four or five things that the Bob and Tom show would repeat. They'd repeat my YouTube bit. They repeated a song called Gangsta Folk that I did live. And Tom, who produced albums, just always wanted to, he says, we really need to do something. And that took me about two years to get my ass to Indianapolis uh, and record with Tom. And that was after the breakup with the Miami girl. I figured, oh, what the heck? My mom lives in South Bend. I'll camp out at her house, but I'll do the album with Tom. And that's exactly what I did. And we had four or five major national syndicated radio hits come out of that one album. And that was, I think, 200, uh, 2007. So, uh, I mean, they do a, Tom does an excellent job of producing things. And 
paying for it. It got a whole bunch of recognition. And in turn, I would write for Tom. I still write for his show to this day. And I come on every once or two weeks with about three new songs. So it's kind of like the old Morning Zoo days, except that I'm not really forced to do parodies anymore. I do uh, most, mostly original, you know, original stuff in wacky styles. I'm not really stuck to the parody format, which I never truly cared for, you know? Now, you sit there, you know, you write these parodies, not, not parodies, you write these funny original songs. You're serious music. Now, do you ever miss that? Or do you sit there, I mean, because you you write songs, it's songwriting. If they're funny or if they're serious, it's still songwriting. Different than a parody, because, you know, parodies, we know. Parodies, you have to think of something and make it up. And then, you you know, you, you have the you have the musical chops, so you can easily play it. But did you do you ever sit there and do you still write serious songs? Or are you so caught up in performing and writing these songs that are, once again, it's hard to explain, but it is songwriting, but it's not the serious music that you used to write. Do you ever sit down and take time and write serious music? That's actually the... Uh song for me to write. When I pick up a guitar or I play piano, the first thing that come to me is something serious. So I write those things first that come off the top of my head. But then I then I realize where my bread is butter and I go, you know, oh wait a minute, we got to twist it somehow. Uh, we have to you have to stop doing your fun work. And for me the fun musical work are these original songs. Whether they be funny or not, uh, when you first start to, to, to sing these things, they all come off as being serious. I kinda have to force myself to really write the funny thing, which are incredibly difficult uh, to write. I mean, to make someone laugh in a song format for two to three minutes is just really difficult. So they come, they're, they're harder to come by. So when I have to do the work work and really, you know, bang it out, I have to force myself to make these funny sometimes because it's easier for me to just emote and to be, you know, to be moody and to kind of have a serious song. It's these funny ones that are so freaking challenging, you know? I mean, sometimes you sit down with something you think is funny. I think I did a song called Yoga Pants two months ago I thought was hilarious. I sat down and played it on the radio for the Bob and Tom guys, and it just was a turd. It got nothing. <laughs> and I thought, my God, never never get ahead of yourself or cocky or you think, okay, this is funny. You know, I run everything by people now, you know, because when you sit there with a turd on your hands, oh, my God, is that painful. I could imagine. I mean, well, it's good though. You also knew it was a turd on your hands before you did it live, because <laughs> I could imagine, you know, doing a show, doing a show, and if the song's not working, see, that's one thing. Doing a show, and like if you're doing a joke, then it's it's only twenty five seconds. If it doesn't work, you can move on. But if you're doing a song that doesn't work, you just can't stop yeah, mid song. Yeah, you have to commit and finish it. What do you What do you do if you get a reaction? especially to a song that you know works. What if you do if you get a reaction where they don't laugh and you're in your mind going, they're not digging it, and you're in your mind going, this show, this joke works, this song works 95% of the time. What do you do? Do you get worried as a performer or do you just sit there and go, screw it, I'm just going to play the song and just say, screw them? Well, you know uh, how Johnny Carson used to kind of goof on himself whenever he had a bad uh, like joke? Um, I kind of take that approach where I, I'm, I'm at least going to be self-deprecating about it. I, I, these moments happen a lot more than you think they happen. When I do Bob and Tom, I'll do five or six songs a morning, five or six things a morning. Two of them may be a repeat, Tom will want a classic one, and then I'll have three new things. But just about a couple months ago, I did this Dr. Phil song that was last three. I mean, I started it, and, uh, and halfway through, the only laugh I got was, well, this isn't going well, and everyone laughed. You know, because, 
you know, and at the end of the song, what I said, I said, boy, that, that song could use a few more laughs. And then Tom goes, well, that song could use a few more jokes. Right. And then everyone cracked up. <laughs> because that's the only way you can really get through something. Like you're going, well, I really need to finish this, but this is a failure. So let's just discuss uh, the failure and crawl from the wreckage and be a human being about it. I mean, there's nothing worse than watching a comic or someone fail and having to not acknowledge it a little bit. Like, I always am, I mean, comics are very endearing when they acknowledge something not going well. You remember Brian Whalen, of course, right? Oh, yeah. Brian Whalen was such, such an intelligent comedian, funny guy. But I remember him, him and I working together, and him dying one time in front of me. And him dying and talking to himself and me was the funniest thing I ever heard in my life. Uh, I mean, he, it was just that he did these clever aside that only, only I really got. And everything he did that was so good was this, this drunk bar. It just wasn't going over well at all. At all. But I, I, I've always loved him for that, for the way he handled it. And the way that he made me laugh, you know, like if he got one, he knew one person was paying attention to him, and that's who he played to because he couldn't get everybody else. And I thought it was fantastic. Now, now, what's it like for you when you go on stage? And as you said, you know, Bob and Tom, people hear your song. So the bottom line is, when you go on stage. They've already heard that song. I know comedians do a, a bit, and you know the bits on the radio. But when they already heard that, does that affect your laugh quotient? Because they've already heard the funny song and they've laughed and they know the punchline already. Yeah, you know what? I don't. Um, I I do two things in the Bob and Tom show in the live thing. I'm in a Bob and Tom market, gangster folk, and the closing thing, which is called First Date, the big band song. Now, because that's a showy, showy, show-off, kind of a big singing moment, the big band song, I, I, I come off like Sinatra, the physicality of it makes them laugh, even if they've heard the joke before. And I think I have the luxury, I said that some music, I can sort of get away with a couple of moments like that, whereas a joke, a guy who has a bit, does not get away with it. If they heard the bit, it's kind of hard to get him to laugh, to laugh again. But with the Bob and Tom thing, I almost have to do a couple songs that they know. And, but I'll be honest with you, that's a great question, and I do not, I, I try to make the whole thing a bit of a surprise, it's why I improvise so much, and, and I can change things around. I will often add different lyrics to get them to laugh, or at least the last verse. So what an excellent question, because it is a situation, it's a sticky one, because you're doing music, people want to hear a, a musical thing that they like on the radio, but they know the joke already, so you gotta, you got to jazz it up, you have to talk in between the verses, keep them engaged. And just fight it for every second, uh, you know, to, to make it entertaining. Now, you earlier said you recorded a few albums. When did you start recording the albums? And I want to ask you after that about how merchandise has changed in stand-up comedy. But when did you first start recording your comedy albums and selling them at shows? Well, it wasn't until I did the Tom one that I sold them at shows. But I, in Miles and Philadelphia, I had a serious album called SF Moderation. And then when I was on the zoo, I did a Christmas album called Ranger Games. So um, I think we did we did sell the Ranger Games during the holiday season. Uh, but it wasn't until, until um, and that was like in 95 or 96, I didn't get a chance to do my next album uh, until it was 2004, 2005 with Tom, and we did three. And when I would do concerts with them, they did the best of the Bob and Tom show. We would do these theaters, in fact, these theaters all over the country. We'd stand back there after shows and have someone take the money and sell the merchandise. It was really professional. It was kind of fun. You meet everybody, you sign a few CDs. And we really moved a lot of CDs. 
Now, Steve, you don't move anything. No one, I don't even bother taking out hard copies of any material. I mean, everything's on iTunes, and even on iTunes, that's going to be dead, they say, in a couple of years. And it's just all going to be Spotify and streaming. So the way that we get paid for stuff is going to have to change drastically, because right now, you can go out on the road, and unless you've got a goofy T-shirt, I've never sold a T-shirt or a hat or something uh, with a dirty thing on it that sells real well or whatever the guys are doing, uh, it's, people cannot move CDs. Some guys are just doing zip drives and all the material on you know a, a USB thing. Uh, but it's, it's really changed, and people are trying to figure out how to get paid for stuff again. And it's, a, it's, it's like the wild west out there, and I have no clue how to be compensated for the creativity anymore. It's going to take another year or so for it to kind of, you know, be, be all mixed up, I think. Now, why don't you sell any of those goofy? I know it sounds weird, but, I mean, you're a headliner. You're a national headliner. You have a big following. If you had a T-shirt, you could clean up. I mean, I've worked with comics. I, I, I laugh. I mean, I, I made a joke the other day about how someone, you know, in L.A., Everybody's recording an album and has merchandise. So when you leave open mics at a coffee shop, people are setting up tables. I mean, it's just, oh, I know. it's awful. But why haven't you done that? Is it just because you don't like that? You're, I mean, inside you're actually a true artist. Or why isn't it when you could you could make a ton of money, a Pat Godwin hat or something with you slinging a guitar, like or, or like an old school album cover, like you in Dan the Torpedoes with Tom Petty with your head face on it, you would sell the shit out of them. Yeah, you know what? I, I actually hate, hate hate all of that kind of stuff. I didn't really get in the business to have a dasher. And I used to have a joke on stage. I'd say, hey, if you want a t-shirt, come up to me after the show and I'll direct you to a gap. You know, I would say <laughs> something like that on stage. And uh, just to let the audience know, hey, stuff's on iTunes. Uh, I'm not, not only am I not, I'm not really good by myself selling anything. I feel very awkward about it. Um, usually when I'm done with a show, I'm kind of spent and my personality is just, you know, I'm just quiet. I'm not, I'm not really good at, but geez, I saw Clinton Teller sell merchandise after a Broadway show and they're brilliant at it. I am actually really shy after a show and not good at it. And I hate the whole idea of dragging around t-shirts in my luggage. Now you you moved to Ohio. When did you move to Ohio? Well, we were back east in my hometown of uh, Dallas, Pennsylvania. Uh, when I started to do the ships, and me being away so much uh, caused a bunch of issues uh, with my with my ex and I. So when we broke up, she took the kids. I have an adopted daughter who's sixteen. Actually, she's seventeen, and my son who's seven, and they hightailed it. She went back to the kids to where she's from in Ohio. So basically what I had to do was stay where I was, where I wanted to be, back east, and work the ships and do, to go out of the airport that I like and have a see the mountains and go fishing and all the beautiful things that eastern Pennsylvania has to offer. I had to go to a pretty boring Ohio and suck it up, be around my son. And my daughter and I are sort of estranged. I adopted her the year before we were divorced, so right now we're just starting to heal a little bit. Yeah, but divorce brought me back to Ohio. Now, your son, Jimmy, who we all know from Facebook, um, is doing stand-up with you now. Now, how did that happen? And that's and the funny thing is, I mean, how did how did you, people, if you don't know, but Pat does shows, Jimmy goes up, his son goes up, not with you, right? He goes up by himself. No, no, he goes up with me. 
when, when he came on the sips with me a year ago, uh, we had a bad day at the beach, and to cheer him up, I wrote this song called "And, and Jimmy Cry," and uh, and he would do the, he would do the sound of a harmonica, just blues kind of a thing. And I told the story about us going to the beach and me cheering him up and blah 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 blah. And the song's hilarious. And what, what Jimmy does with it is uh, he'll come up on stage and uh, well, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. How I bring Jimmy on stage is I do the the, the radio hit "Gangsta Folk," and Jimmy from the back of the crowd starts singing the background vocals. The crowd notices. notices. I've been talking about Jimmy on stage. I go, "Oh, my son is singing along. Let's bring him up on stage." He comes up on stage. I hand him the mic, and he kills it by doing the background vocals, which is where all the jokes are in that song. And then I do this original piece of mine and have Jimmy, uh, have Jimmy, and I, I take the first verse, and Jimmy corrects me on some of the rhymes because he goes, "No, that didn't happen, Dad." And we do kind of a Smothers Brothers thing, and then I go, "Hey, well, if you." Why don't you take the second verse by yourself if you know so much about songwriting? And then he kills this really funny second verse where he kooks on me. And he practically gets a standing ovation. It's so freaking funny. I mean, he just destroys it. I sometimes have a hard time following a little bastard. <laughs> now, now, has he had a bad set yet? Like, has, or do, I mean, and how would you, what would you talk to him about if he didn't, if it didn't go with a big laugh, how would you talk to him and, you know, inform him that that does happen every once in a while? Well, that's, well, I'm so glad you asked this question because Jimmy is so good at it and he doesn't really, really want to rehearse so much. So if he hasn't done it for a week or two, in the car, I'll go over it with him. It's, it's impossible to get Jimmy before a show to kind of really focus on that. He's more focused on just being in the moment like his dad, to be honest with you. And he says to me all the time, Dad, I want to talk more. Uh, and I want to try different things. And I said, Jimmy, let's just stick to the uh, program for now. But for a while there, we just practiced New Year's Eve. Jimmy came up on Tuesday and Wednesday night. Uh, the first night, he pretended that he was, like, drunk, and he had a candy cigarette. And he didn't even tell me he was going to do this. And the audience was like, what the hell is this? And I had to tell him afterwards, no, don't need to do a character. You just need to do what we wrote. And then the second show, we killed it. But every now and then, he'll try something new or talk or goof around and do something that doesn't really work. So the kid is finding out in his own how to progress and act, how to, how to be funnier all the time. But he's getting slapped a little bit. In other words, he'll try something. And, you know, Jimmy's just in front of some pretty high-powered moments. He did a Bob and Tom show with me when we had 3,000 people there. And that was when we first wrote that bit about a year ago. And he killed so, I mean, when, when Jimmy takes chances on stage, he's not doing it at, all, at an open mic. He's, he's doing it in front of an enormous <laughs> amount of people. Well, I, so he kind of, he's starting to get it, I think, a little bit. Well, I think that's also the seven-year-old in you. You have no fear. I mean, you know, it's like we all worry. Yeah, about, yeah no fear. No fear. Now, you, you mentioned the cruise ships. Now, how did you get involved with the cruise ships? And, and what's your experience with them? Because it's, it's different than the comedy club experience. Versus whatever you want to make it. I mean, people call, people think you hack out, or it's where, which where a, a guy at the end, you know, at the end of the trail end of his career goes off to die in the woods, so to speak. Uh, the truth is, people in the audience, if it's always packed, people in the audience can be anywhere from two years old to ninety. You got to do, you got to work clean. You got to work blue if you want to. But like Carnival is kind of more rednecky and kind of like a raucous, whereas. World Caribbean and Celebrity, their, their, their sister ships, are really kind of a hoity-toity. 
and you got to dress nice, you got to be nice, and if you're going to go off in the crowd, and you know, I, I can be pretty Don Rickley at moments, because I just come off the road, and you get keys on the road, you do crowd work, you make fun, like, you know, you, you even get a little insulting from time to time, but on the ship, there's this fine line you get to tread, because the customer is king, and you could be in trouble from one, one, one comment card, because the cruise industry, they're typically not Americans, they're, they're, you know, and they don't, I don't know, they, they don't they don't understand the humor as much, but they will listen to a, uh, a guest. So you have to be really careful not to piss the guest off and to be on your best behavior and to be sweet. It's, it's truly unlike anything else in, in entertainment. It's so It's very hard, very hard. But I, I learned so much doing the cruise ships, uh, you know, putting together clean sets, putting together adult sets, when you go on a Princess, I had to have five different 40-minute sets, and all of it was clean, no adult sets. So it's very challenging. Now, now, when you do the cruise ships, though, how many shows do you do a week? I mean, I heard sometimes you only do two shows a week. Or I mean, what's the what's the cap, ship the show count? Well, um, every 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 cruise line is different. When you do uh, Royal Caribbean, you will probably only do um, one or two shows in five or six days. What happens is they'll bring you one of the tail end of a cruise, you'll do a farewell show, then the very next day, you'll, you'll do a welcome aboard show. And those two are clean. And then three days later, you'll do your own 45-minute adult show. And so that's the, that's the typical Royal Caribbean ship. But now there are three larger ones that where they have actual comedy clubs, and you do two shows a night, sometimes three, seven days in a row, then you go to another ship and do another seven days. So that's the craziest amount I don't think anybody's worked. Three or four times during the week, you'll do three shows a night. And uh, these are these are typically half-hour shows. And you never get the same crowd because people can only go to see the comedy show once. So you can repeat material. So as, as hard as the schedule sounds, it's actually an easier one mentally because you don't have to worry about putting together, you know, five completely different sets. And that's the way to the princess. I mean, you, you, you do two theater shows that are completely different than three lounge shows that are different too so yeah they 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 they, they run you through the hoops now you know you've been doing comedy for a long time you've been headlining for a long time i mean you know you basically you've been you one of those you're one of the rare comics that pretty much have been headlining since like month one or two okay that doesn't happen a lot i mean just you because the yeah. morning zoo you got into it and the difference is you decided to actually work on your act and cultivate your act and grow as an act how have you seen your your writing style and your personal stage style? Has it changed over the years, or are you just doing the same stuff, but just making it better and just trying to experiment more? But you know, I always go up there with something prepared and memorized that's new, whether it be every five five day period. Something I've done on the radio that I forced myself to do in a live uh, setting, but I improvise so much. Every show seems wildly different because they are. And I don't mean I just improvise by just, just doing crowd work. I mean, I'll come out and talk about the day, and if I've got some, if it leads into a song, great. But I've amassed enough material now where if I sit down during the day and just go over everything and look at things that I could use, I can kind of make it exciting for me and do all these different kinds of things. I mean, basically, I'm just goofing around and, and, and making fun of song styles and people's voices and having fun in my own life and being married. Um, and I've always been, it seems like I've always been going through some kind of breakup, 
got a kind of a confidence that can get you in trouble, like a cocky. If you never go on stage cocky, you know, you get your ass handed to you pretty quickly. I just think I go up there with a lot of tools in the belt, and I'm able to kind of pick and choose what I want for that particular moment. So I'm lucky in that regard that I've been doing it, doing it long enough where I feel, you know, i got a lot of stuff to choose from. In regards to the impressions, though, guys are dying left and right. That I used to make that I used to make fun of, so I dropped a lot of things that used to do really well. So you do have to constantly change and grow. Now, now, how have crowds changed in your eyes? You know, I talk to so many comedians that say it's not, you know, it's not like it used to be because crowds are so uptight. Have you noticed a change in crowds, and have you noticed you can say? some things and not say some things. I mean, we all know there's topics that are sort of taboo, and I'm one of those people I think funny is funny anyway. But there's now, it seems like there's like, you you know, you can't talk about certain stuff without people getting pissy and wanting to leave. Are you still there? My phone did something Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Uh, that's a great question. What I noticed is that if you're on a cruise ship where there's no cell service, uh, the crowds are just like the old days. What I find, it's not even a be correct. I think I'll get into the tension. Uh, there's every, a lot of people have the phone in the face. So unless you have a, a phone in the face joke, and I've got a couple of, 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 of uh, iPhone jokes that I do. I should have a song at this point. Get so irritating. A lot of the A clubs have given up policing people that are, that are texting, uh, or even on their phone sometimes, or filming you. And it's up to the performer to either give up, and a lot of the younger guys, it doesn't bother them. But for veterans, uh, like myself, it really bothers the hell out of me, because I feel like I've lost that person. And when, in fact, they could be Googling you, they could be, you know, um, saying, uh, putting a, a, a post on Facebook that this guy's great. But what I see is I've lost that person. So my mind is now getting that person to put the freaking phone down, and then moving forward with the show. So what I find is there's a rudeness and an attention span that wasn't there in the past. I just think that no one has a respect for the, the theatrical art form that stand-up is because it's a nightclub environment. And they think, oh, screw this guy. I, just, I got my phone out. I'm still enjoying him. And there's a, you have to be really careful as an older guy in the business not to just come off like an old man telling, telling kids to get off your lawn. You know, you really you got to do it in a funny way where they get, okay, this guy's distracted. And I've got three or four iPhone jokes and things like that where people understand that I'm serious. But I prefer to have their attention. And regards to putting the correct thing, I, I think that you're right. Or, or you know what you've heard and seen and it is correct. It's, it's a different world out there. And a lot of times you don't even know it. You'll have this piece you, you just do it, you just think it's funny. Like I used to do this Miami thing about not going over well with the Cuban crowd. And uh, and I said, uh, okay, uh, I, I need to get you guys on my side. I'll sing a song for the Cubans. But I would sing, row, row, row your boat. And it would get a huge laugh. But then, like only a year ago, a couple of people came up to me on the ship and said, hey, you know, that's really offensive. I lost my uncle, Pepe, in a boat a year ago. And it made me think, well, there goes that bit. I just thought that was funny because I was pointing out that an Irish guy from Philly doesn't know how to get a Cuban uh, crowd on his side. And that came from an actual incident where the crowd hated me in Miami because I sang the row, row, row your boat thing. So I think something that's funny to you, and that's just brought to your attention, you know, you really don't know sometimes. And I've never been a guy who worked who worked a room like that anyway, and I had a lot of politically correct material. I had stuff that mostly goofed on myself. So 
I have been lucky. But there have been a few moments where I've been just told about it after the show. I believe me, people will come up and tell you about it. Yeah, and it's weird, though. It's so funny when people come up, and this is one thing that bothers me, is that when people come up and say, hey, you know, that's that happened to my uncle. Well, the thing is, yeah, but it didn't happen to everyone else's uncle. I understand if it's something that it's, in, it's you know, uh, happened to a bunch of people, you know, but it's now, it, to me, it just seems like if it happened to, like, one person, they, they think you should just stop because of them. And to me, that's just such a sign of narcissism and entitlement that it bothers me. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. I remember, um, go ahead. No, you. Oh, I'm sorry, I just had the delay thing. I got that big delay thing going on now. I'm sorry, Steve, the thing is just delaying. It's okay. Well, we, we're, it's almost been an hour. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> but no, so so what were you going to say about the someone coming up to you? Well, where I got, okay, now I'm not doing the delay thing. What I think is really funny, um, if you start off in a rough club, you're just doing a one-nighter, and you have this bit that you think, I remember I had the uh, Marley Matlin, the poor deaf girl from Children of a Lesser God, singing a Christmas song. And it didn't dawn on me just how offensive it was, because I, first time I did it, I did it around my friends who were all offensive. We're all kind of goofy and offensive when we're not on in front of a microphone. I mean, it was just the way guys do things sometimes. You kind of try to shock each other. So I did this thing, like driving to the gig, and I think, one of the guys, oh my God, it's hilarious. I put it on stage and it got a big laugh because I was a shit, you know, hell gig. And the following week, I did it at a real, real gig. And oh my God, I, I've never felt more horrible in my life because this couple came up to me and says, you know, we really thought you were good until you did the death joke. I mean, imagine someone doing a death joke, for Christ's sake. Now, we're going back to 1994, 95, when I first hit the road. But I felt so bad about it. But ever since then, I don't just come up on stage with this reckless, hey, it worked at a crap club, you know, uh, and I, I, I sort of think ahead of, of the audience and what I'm doing. Because that, that particular moment really stuck with me, how, how stupid and offensive I, I was. Yeah, so, okay, so now you're, you're, you're playing the Poconos tonight? Is that where you're driving to? Yeah, I'm doing the gig for uh, Scott Bruce. Uh, you know, whenever I have an open weekend or something, I'll let Scott know, and he's usually been pretty good about sneaking me in places. And, you know, this is like a Bill Catskills gig. I don't know if you ever did this Poconos gig, but this could be quite a learning experience, too. <laughs> <laughs> now, now do, you, do you still enjoy the road? It's been a long time. I mean, do you still do you still enjoy the process? Uh, I don't enjoy the travel. I don't enjoy being away from my son. I, I enjoy the time on stage. Um, and that, that, that 45 minutes, that, it, it doesn't go... It, it doesn't go long enough in the day to make it really worthwhile, but I'm in a financial situation where I have child support, and this is just like going to work for me. So I strap on the big boy pants, and I put my boots on, and I uh, I, I, I step around in the mud a little bit, and I get my, my clothes dirty, and that's the travel part of it. And, you know, I hurt my leg a year ago, so I'm traveling around with some tingling in my foot, and I feel like a cold prize fighter at times. But you know what? When you're introduced... That pain from the day of being in the car for 10 hours goes away. You're smiling. You know, you're interactive. You're a part of society. You're doing a good service. You're making people laugh. And it's a great thing. But it's like the old days. That used to last for a while. I swear to God, it doesn't last five, seven minutes anymore. I'm immediately missing my son and wanting to be back home the minute I leave the stage. Wow. So that's the part that really hurts for me is that uh, it's a job, but it's, it's not, it's, 
not like it was an adventure anymore. You know, it used to be an adventure, and, and now it's now it's really the traveling is just such a job. Well, I, I want to thank you for coming on, man. Now, now, how do people find you? What's your social media situation? Uh, it's pretty much all Pat Godwin. The Facebook is Pat Godwin. Uh, the Twitter is at Pat Godwin. Instagram, I think I have an underscore between Pat and Godwin. Uh, I don't really engage as much as I should on that, but now with the new, I have two new albums coming out this year. I'm going to start to do a little more uh, social networking. And uh, the, the uh, website is patgodwin.com. And they can find all your dates there and what's going on with you. Yeah, you can find all the dates, but more importantly, you can get a lot of free music because right now we're just giving it away because everybody's going to be on Spotify in a year or so. So right now I think there's at least 70 free downloads on the website. And I still have four albums on the iTunes thing, and I'll have two brand new ones this year. So people, go check out Pat Goblin. Go to his website, patgoblin.com. I've known him for a long time. He always, he always does well. He's one of those comics, if you go see live, you're going to walk away and go, hey, you know what? It's a good night out. We're laughing. So go to his website. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 680 episodes. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Instagram, I'm coopertalk1. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Also, my other website, stopthesalt.com. You know, when I had that heart condition a few years ago, when I got out of the hospital, I wrote a cookbook, 120 low-sodium recipes. Easy to make. No pictures to intimidate you. No long list of ingredients. I love to cook, but this is for people who don't like to cook. And you got to eat healthy. Now, you can get it at Amazon, but if you get it at, Coop, at StopTheSalt.com, I make more money. So, people, check out Pat Godwin. Check out CooperTalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next week.